The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB here in Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue with you tonight and taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night, the 17th day of July, 2022. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is across the way, as always, and I'm happy to welcome you aboard tonight. Uh, so very glad you could be with us. We've got some great people in the lineup tonight. Up first, we'll speak to former Major League Baseball umpire Dale Scott. He's got a new book out titled The Umpire is Out, Calling the Game and Living My True Self. And in the second half, we'll welcome in the son of one of the newest Hall of Famers, Gil Hodges Jr. will join us. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy this edition of the show on GBB. As always, some great people, some great sports talk and memories up ahead. As always, before we begin, I invite you to follow us on social media. We are on Facebook. We are on LinkedIn. We are on Twitter at WGBB Sports Talk. And you can also follow me on Twitter at B. Donahue, WGBB, and all shows, all past shows are cataloged out on the website. If you miss one, don't worry about it. You can listen to it at your leisure. Well, our first guest, he worked as a big league, big league umpire for 33 seasons. He retired due to multiple concussions in 2017. His great resume it includes three World Series, three All-Star games, over 91 postseason games. His new book is titled The Umpire is Out, Calling the Game and Living My True Self. It's from our friends at the University of Nebraska Press. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show tonight Dale Scott. Dale, good evening. Bill, how you doing? Great to be here. Great to have you, Dale. Great to have you aboard tonight. Now, uh, baseball as a kid, did you play the game? you had any favorite teams and players? Well, you know, I, growing up in Eugene, Oregon, uh, my my uh, grandfather, my mother's dad, lived in L.A. He was a Dodger fan, so, my gosh, I was a Dodger fan. Yeah, so, okay. Uh, I, I, yeah, I loved the game uh, growing up, and, and I was uh, I pretty much was destined to be the first baseman for the Dodgers until I started to play, uh, <laughs> and I re- realized that I couldn't... Uh, you know, run, hit, uh, field, or throw. So, uh, yeah. uh, my playing days were, uh, exciting for me for a few years, but I was really bad, uh, and, and so I started umpiring when I was 15. Now, what piqued your interest in umpiring? Uh, as a kid, did you have that interest? Well, well, no, but I spent a lot of time on the bench, so I watched them a lot. Okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it was a friend of mine that was a year older, uh, uh said you know you should you know i wanted to stay in the game at 15 and, and how are you going to do that you know I, uh, if you're not playing i certainly um, was too young to coach so not that i would be a good coach but he said you should you know check into umpire and you can make a little extra money in the summer and uh, and it's it's pretty interesting and i thought you know okay i could check that out and i started it and I, i'll be honest with you bill I, I loved it from the very beginning nice great okay now yeah you umpired uh Age fifteen, you entered the minor leagues. That's pretty young in eighty one. Well, well, not, well, not the not the minor leagues. I just started uh, working little league. And, ah, okay, and, yeah, and, and junior high and stuff. I went to umpire school when I was twenty one. All right, uh, which is the only way you can get in the minor leagues, and that, and that's when I uh, started working professional baseball. Now, besides the obvious, Dale, what's the differences between uh, umpiring in the minors and major league baseball? Well, you know, in the minor leagues, you're, you know, the, the players, uh, oftentimes the managers and coaches and the umpires, you're there, you're, 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 you're learning the game. I mean, not that you don't know the game, but you're, you're learning the, the you know, how to play it and umpire it and, and manage it professionally. Um, you know, uh, it's obviously in the minor leagues, um, you don't have the media attention that you have in the big leagues. You don't have the, uh, uh, you know, the bigger cities and this and that and, and, you know, you're just trying to basically, as an umpire, you're just trying to, you know, if you get into professional baseball out of school, which is a pretty big hurdle, um, well then, then you just want to, you're just looking at the next step up. I'm an A ball. I'm going to try to make it to double A. And if I get to double A, I'm going to try to make it to triple A. And then, 
you know, climb that ladder. Um, you always had that goal of the big leagues ahead of you, but uh, it really wasn't re- realistic until you made it, if you made it to AAA, and that's when you really, uh, you know, are one step away. It may be a minuscule point, Dale, but I like the red shirts. <laughs> we make a point about the red shirts in the book. You were the only umpire to wear that rather than the navy blue. The American League introduced those red shirts in 96. You you always wore the red shirt when working the plate. And uh, you you even have that on the cover of the book. Tell us the uh, saga of the red shirt. Right. Well, yeah, for five years, uh, the American League went to, uh, they had a, a, the red shirt and also a dark navy shirt that you could wear. That was from 95 to 99. And uh, I was working with Dave Phillips, uh, Rocky Rowe, and Derwood Merrill, and, and Davey and Rocky hated the red shirt. Most of the guys did not like the red shirt, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, and so uh, at that time, uh, the plate umpire, whatever he wore, the base guys would have to wear the same color. Or if the base umpires all wore like the windbreaker and, and the plate guy had, you know, wore a shirt if it was a little bit cooler. Well, I had, uh, because, you know, they didn't like it, so I thought, well, if they don't like it, I'm going to wear it every time. I'm going to hear him uh, complaining about it. Uh, Rocky Rowe had a, just a hilarious line. He usually, when I had the plate, he had third base. Rocky, uh, He's lost a lot of weight since, but he was a little rotund at the time. And he said, my God, Dale, don't put me in that red shirt. He goes, every time I have to run from uh, third to second, I look like a human blood clot. You know, <laughs> yeah. that was that was classic. So that's that's really the uh, the genesis of me wearing it every time I had the plate. Unless it was just so cold, I, I, I wore a coat. But uh, I did it because of that. But it kind of was a, a marketing, almost branding thing where, because so few guys wore it regularly or or at all, uh, if somebody's you know tuning into a game and they see a red shirt, they're pretty pretty good shot. It was either me or Daryl Cousins who also wore it every time. So it was kind of a marketing thing that that it ended up. And so when I when the book happened, I said I know exactly the picture I want to use for the cover. You know, it's got to be the yeah. red shirt. Nice, and that you did, yeah. And we can see that emblazoned on the cover of Dale Scott's new book, The Umpire Is Out. Now, you you worked your last game, I think it was, uh, I read April 14th, 2017 in Toronto. Uh, you mm-hmm. got hit in the mask, and they had to cart you off the field uh, with a concussion and whiplash. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, that uh, day in your life. Well, that, that was, uh, uh, the fourth concussion I sustained from a, a foul ball to the, to the mask. Um, you know, when you see an umpire take a shot in the mask, sometimes you see the ball go flying off to the side, or you may even see the uh, mask go flying off the, uh, off the face. And it looks really dramatic, but a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times when that happens, it shows that the equipment has, has taken the brunt of that hit. If you see that a ball just hit and just drop down dead, it just doesn't go anywhere, which is what happened for me, um, that's a pretty good sign that you took the entire uh, energy of that of that hit, and that's unfortunately what happened. I, I had, Like I said, I had had four already. This is the first time that I had whiplash uh, accompanied with it, but um, I was only two years away from uh, retiring. That was my plan to retire after the 2019 season, and so I... I you know, after as I was recovering, I was uh, talking to a couple specialists. Uh, I ended up talking to three of them, and you know, I just asked them. I said, "All these head blows and and and, and concussions. What are the long term uh, effects, if there are any?" And they said, "Well, Dale, to be honest with you, we don't know. Um, mm. We're we're doing the research. We're trying to find out uh, information. Uh, uh, you know, every day. But the fact of the matter is, they just don't know. And and uh, you know, I thought." You know, I'm so close to retirement. I, I'm, I'm kind of playing on house money. I think I'm just going to walk away, and that's and that's what I did. Interesting. Okay, that story straightened out. That's good, Dale. Thank you. Now, I want to talk about May 30th, 1988. We'll backtrack a little bit. You ejected the legendary Billy Martin from a game against the A's, and subsequently, Billy Martin was suspended for three games. For throwing dirt at you, tell us about tell us about what went on in that situation, Dale. Well, it was the it was the last time Billy Martin ever got ejected. Uh, he uh, 
it was a, a Monday Memorial Day game in, in, in Oakland, uh, five o'clock start because it was on uh, national TV. And it was, uh, the bottom of the third. Walt Weiss, uh, led off the third with a, uh, for the A's, uh, with a, with a, uh, a line drive, sinking line drive to the second baseman, Bobby Meacham. And the, and the question was, did Meacham catch it or did it, uh, you know, skip into his glove? Uh, I had first base. Rick Reed was, uh, the umpire at second and Rick, uh, called no catch. And from, from where I was, I, you know, I, frankly, I couldn't tell. It was that close. It, it could have gone either way. He's got no catch, so I've got no catch. Uh, you know, it was, uh, if I had seen it obviously being a catch or something, that's something different, but I uh, couldn't tell. So, uh, Meacham, though, thought it was a catch. He didn't even, uh, look at Rick for a signal or anything. He just started throwing it around the horn. Well, you know, Weiss uh, strides into first base easily. And, and, and so that, uh, well, that upset. Bobby ended up said Billy. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, Billy came running out and, and was arguing with, uh, with Rick Reed. And then I was just, you know, standing around minding my own business. But, uh, finally he, he, he looks at me and he said, you saw him catch the ball. And I said, no, Billy, he trapped it. And he said, well, you're full of blah, blah, blah. Right. And, uh, that's, you can't say that. <laughs> so I, I ejected it and, 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 uh, and he, and he went off and he, and he was trying to kick dirt on me. And the infield <laughs> had been watered down, you know, to keep the dust down. It was right. still a little damp. So he, and a couple of kicks, he could not get any dirt on me, so he just bent down, uh, grabbed a bunch of dirt with both hands, and just threw it right on my chest. Yeah. <laughs> so he got uh, suspended. He went back, uh, you know, worked another, I don't know, three weeks or so, uh, 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 never got ejected. Uh, Steinbrenner fired him, and he never managed again. So I was the last umpire to throw him out. Interesting. Great. Okay. And I want to tell you a story now, Dale. Uh, sure. My Father's Day show, I had Billy Billy Jr. on the program. Uh, and interestingly enough, Billy Martin Jr.'s son is going to umpiring school, and uh, one of the reasons <laughs> is, Billy joked, is because he wanted to be the first umpire to kick dirt on a manager. <laughs> well, you know, I, trust me, that thought had crossed my mind a few times. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Now, you also worked worked uh, the field, worked the plate for some milestone games. I'm speaking uh, right now of April 22nd, 1994. Scott Erickson throws a no-hitter for the Twins versus the Brewers. Uh, you were also first base umpire when Verlander threw a no-hitter at Comerica Park against the Brewers. Uh, what goes through your mind, Dale, when you're umpiring a game that you see, might have historical impl- implications like that. Well, you know, you're you're on the field. Uh, uh, you know, for example, that that Eric Snow hitter I had uh, behind the plate in, in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. You know, you I, quite frankly, I didn't even realize he had a no hitter until about the sixth inning. I happened to you know look up between innings. I thought, oh my gosh, there's a yeah. big zero there. And and you 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 know you're you're always trying to stay focused, obviously, for every pitch and every game and all that stuff. But now, as we get later in the innings, you're well aware of what's happening, and you know you're just kind of a little voice in you. Not only the play guy, but everybody on the uh, every umpire on the field is saying, "Okay, just you know, focus now. Focus. Do not do not get that uh, you know that catch no catch and, and and miss it and end up being a hit or you know don't miss that play at first. And of course, for me, just stay on that uh, on every pitch one at a time. Uh, Erickson. In the in the uh, top of the ninth, he I think he walked two hitters. He was he was struggling with his control a little bit, but still they had no hits. Uh, but they got a couple runners on. But eventually he uh, he shut them down for the no hitter. But you're you're well aware as an umpire, it's in the back of your mind. But you certainly uh, you know you're just uh, at, you know taking one pitch, one play at a time, uh, and and you know just uh, focus and, and do your job. Pressure, a lot of pressure. Well, there is, but you know, it, pressure is something that, sure, it's out there. Yeah, you're, you're aware of it, but you you try to channel that into into focus and into uh, concentration. Okay, I get you there, Dale. Dale Scott, his new book is called "The Umpire Is Out," and we're speaking to him on Sports Talk New York tonight. Now, Verlander, couple of interesting games with Verlander, as we said. Uh, you were the second most tenured umpire selected to officiate the opening series at the Sydney Cricket Ground in Sydney, Australia. What was that like, Dale? Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Uh, the Dodgers, uh, Diamondbacks were playing there. Were, uh, 
you know, it was an honor to to be on that crew to represent uh, the umpires in Major League Baseball. The old cricket grounds, man, I, I, I think it's been around since the 18, I want to say 60s. I could be wrong, but mm-hmm. it was a, uh, you know, hollowed ground uh, in Sydney and, and you know, and, and the many, many historic, you know, cricket games that have been played there. And it, it was fun because uh, the locker room, the officials' locker room, every cricket umpire that works would sign the wall and there were signatures all over the wall of everybody that worked there and of course we got to uh, sign the wall also uh, as umpires for the first major league games uh, official major league games being played in, in in sydney so it was really a thrill to do that we had a week in uh, in sydney the, the, the crew got out there uh, a few days early and, and able to enjoy some uh, you know a, a wine tasting tour and some other things it was funny because it was during uh, spring training, during March, when this trip took place. We left the United States. It was winter time. We landed. It was summertime there. Yeah. But uh, during the week, it, it changed, and it was their spring, or excuse me, their fall. And then we flew back, and it was uh, spring. So we, we hit all four seasons in a week. Yeah. Oh man, what a way to mess your head up, Dale. Yeah. 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 That is a, that is a time change. Yeah. I'm still. I'm just getting over it right now. <laughs> yeah. Now we talked about your running Billy, uh, Billy Ball, running Billy Martin uh, after tossing some dirt. Now, I, I looked it up. You had some memorable ejections, Dale, and also if folks want to look it up. Dale uh, had run-ins with some big names. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, Joe Schmo here. I'm talking about Hall of Famers. Joe Morgan uh, was one. Uh, Sparky Anderson was another. Uh, give us an insight into some of those uh, run-ins with some memorable guys, Dale. Well, uh, Sparky was the first uh, manager I ever rejected in, uh, in my first year in 1986. We were in Toronto at the old Exhibition Stadium, mm-hmm. and it was uh, a, day, a day getaway game, a Sunday game, and I had the plate. And and you know the, the, the Tigers and Sparky just weren't uh, they weren't buying what I was selling. They they, they weren't uh, believing my uh, my uh, ball strike calls, and so it, uh, they were you know complaining and everything. And, and Lance Parrish was the catcher, and and Lance uh, you know it's not the most personable guy in the world, and he wasn't uh, real thrilled with me anyway. Uh, Sparky goes out to the mound to quote unquote talk to his pitcher, and of course I knew exactly what he was doing. He was just right. waiting for me. Yeah. So uh, I said, well, "Let's get this over with." So I came out there and I said, uh, "You know, Sparky goes, well, you know, where are those pitches?" I said, "Sparky, we're not going to we're not going to talk about pitches. You know that." And he goes, "The hell we aren't." And he went off, and so of course I ejected him, and he was in my face, just uh, giving me the business. So it, we finally got him away, and. <laughs> Larry McCoy was one of my partners, and he just really kind of discreetly handed me a, a handkerchief, and he said, you might want to wipe off your face. And I looked down. He, Sparky had sprayed me with tobacco juice all over my face Ooh. and all over our uh, light blue shirt. <laughs> so, uh, I, and quite frankly, during the during the argument, I didn't realize it because we were just, you know, in the heat of the moment. So anyway, I wiped my, uh, my face off with the handkerchief. The, that white handkerchief suddenly was a tan color. Uh, oh a few days later, uh, Marty Springstead, the head of the umpires for the American League, he called me and said, Scotty, he said, uh, I'm just uh, give me a heads up, uh, the league is not going to uh, suspend Sparky for the uh, tobacco juice. And I said, well, you know, why? And he said, well, you know, when we write the reports, uh, it goes to, you know, to the team and so they can read them also. And, and the Tigers said, well, this can't, it couldn't have happened uh, because Sparky quit chewing. Oh man! <laughs> I, said, I said, "Well, he might have quit chewing, but he was chewing that that inning, and uh, and if he if he wasn't chewing, he better see a doctor because his saliva is brown." <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, <laughs> that's a good one. We're speaking with Dale Scott tonight on the program. Sports Talk New York is where we are tonight. Now, a radio personality is what you became at KBDF. It was a top forty station in Eugene in the late seventies. Yeah. How did you uh, get into broadcasting? Well, you know, uh, as I said earlier, I was uh, I loved baseball growing up, and I wanted right. to, you know play baseball. But I also had this fascination with radio. And I, uh, when I was in junior high, I, I did a report on on being a disc jockey. I interviewed one of the the top uh, top forty DJs in Eugene, Oregon. Well, uh, I got to high school. The uh, the four high schools in the Eugene district had 
uh, the district had an FM station. They had remotes at all four high schools. So I was, uh, you know, each school had a certain amount of time every day they could be on the air. And I started doing that. And right after my junior year, uh, the, the number one top 40 station in Eugene literally was across the street from my high school. So I, I took one of my tapes that I had uh, made from some of the shows I did from the high school. And I, I just cold called him and just uh, said, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking for a job or, to, you know, I just want to get my foot in the door and maybe, mm-hmm. you know, learn a lot about the, uh, you know, about, you know, about radio. And, I, uh, you know, I never really thought they would hire me, and, and they did. <laughs> so yeah. uh, my first my first shift, I was 16 years old. My first shift on KBDF was the Bicentennial, July 4th, 1976. And, uh, and I had a, a long five, five and a half years that I worked there part-time, and then I went full-time after a couple of years of college before I went to uh, umpire school. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, radio, uh, I can't complain, Dale. I agree with you there. And a lot of people say I have a face for radio. And, uh, <laughs> well, so do I. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's why I stick around, I guess. But, um, and you, you're buddies with Harold Reynolds, too? Well, you know, Harold, uh, I had him as a player with the Mariners, but Harold's from Oregon. Uh, Corvallis, Oregon is where he grew up, but he, he's, his brother, uh, was a running back for the University of Oregon Ducks, which is, you know, my team. And Big so, fan, yeah, uh, right. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Harold and I, uh, you know, when I first started and I knew that, you know, his, about his brother and everything. So, uh, when I would, you know, work second base and he was a second baseman, I'd say, hey, Harold, you know, how about them Ducks, you know, and we'd start talking duck football and stuff. And, uh, just, you know, through the years, of course, he went into the, a broadcast uh, profession, and, and so yeah, we, we we keep in touch. He, uh, you know, I see him once in a while at a duck game in the, in, in the off season, and you know, Harold's got my number. So if there's something uh, weird or controversial happens, he usually calls or texts me and says, "Hey, oh, what's really on this? What's happening? <laughs> mm-hmm. Explain this to me." <laughs> so uh, he's, he's a good guy, and uh, uh, we have that love of uh, duck football. Good, good resource, Harold. Yes, definitely. That's for sure. Now, in 2014, Dale, you chose to come out as gay, open the first active openly gay umpire in Major League Baseball. What what uh, went towards your decision? Well, um, you know, by that time, the staff, the people I worked with, already knew. Uh, the people I worked for, Major League Baseball, already knew. Um, I had been and still am with uh, Michael since 1986, and, mm-hmm. and, and in fact, in 2013, uh, we got legally married. So the next year, um, I just thought it was, uh, I don't know, a little hypocritical for me to uh, be legally married, to have so many people that had worked so hard for us to have that, uh, you know, we, so we could do that. And, and I thought, you know, it's just, it was time. And so, uh, you know, I came out, you know, in a, in a referee magazine uh, story about my career and stuff I, I i actually didn't say anything in the story but i sent a picture of michael and i to accompany the the article and i said uh, you know dale scott long with longtime companion michael roush and mm-hmm. and that opened the door uh outsports.com uh, got a wind of that and they they did an interview and and and, and put that out and and it was out there so, so it was news for the teams it was news to media it was news to fans and it was the first uh, openly a gay active uh, male official in the top five sports, but right. uh, it was uh, it was a, a positive experience. I'm glad I did it, and that led uh, you know a few years later to the book. Right, and uh, that I assume is your motivation to write the book, Dale. How has the reaction been to the book? Outstanding. It's Good. been great. I've been uh, uh, June. I uh, I went to seven uh, MLB Pride nights uh, in June. I went to one in in, in May. Uh, in fact, I went to the Mets uh, Pride Night. Right. Yep. On, on the, uh, June seventeenth, and the reaction, uh, the feedback I've gotten for the book has been outstanding. The reviews uh, that I've had have been very, very good. And uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's um, the people I've met in some of these book signings and, and going to these events. Uh, some of the people that have come up to me and said, you know, Dale, because of you, uh, you gave me courage to uh, to come out to my family or to come out to my co-workers or you know you you uh you lifted me up by by hearing your story i i i realized you know what i i can do this in, in, in a you know a certain field or whatever and it really is very very humbling bill to hear these stories and and know that uh you know my my story and my journey uh helped them and, and I'm, I'm just i'm very proud of that 
Makes it all worthwhile, Dale, that's for sure. Now, Absolutely, yeah. Your, your recall in the book, as we said, we spoke about certain instances. The, your recall, incredible. Uh, the book is packed with stories and specific dates that uh, go back in Dale's career to, to the 70s. And we, we spoke about the ejections. We spoke about Billy. We spoke about Sparky. And you managed to come off... Uh, surprisingly, not bitter about these things, Dale. You, you can speak to them uh, qu- quite openly with uh, with no bitterness in your heart. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the players and managers have a job to do, just like we do. And sometimes that job conflicts with each other, and there's uh, a little friction. Managers, you know, ejections are part of the game. I mean, uh, managers get ejected on purpose for uh, you know to, to, to fire up a team or to fire up a crowd or whatever. Uh, and, and, you know, when fans are yelling at me when I was on the field, they're yelling at a uniform. They don't know who Dale Scott is, you know. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ten seconds later, I might have a call and they'll be cheering, you know. So you, you, you can't really take it personally. You just have to understand what's happening in the heat of the moment. Uh, you know, sure, there was times that I wasn't as happy as I wanted to be <laughs> because of right. uh, Sparky spitting on me or something. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm a pretty upbeat guy. I like to... I like to laugh. I like to have people laugh, and I think that's uh, you can tell that when you read the book. Now, how much progress Dale has Major League Baseball made on the LGBTQ front uh, on on those, those specific issues? Well, you know, in 2014, they hired uh, Billy Bean, uh, the ex-player who right. uh, came out uh, in '99 and wrote a book after he retired. Uh, it was a proactive hire. No league it had hired somebody specifically. Uh, for inclusion, and, and it really uh, really showed that uh, Major League Baseball and Minor League, I mean, professional baseball, the commissioner's office was serious, uh, you know, about welcoming everyone. Everyone's welcome in baseball, and and, and they've, they've made tremendous strides. Now, I will admit, it's the only uh, it's the only sport that I of the Big Five that we have not had an out player, an active out player. Mm-hmm. Uh, football, basketball, soccer, hockey. I think uh, they've all had one, at least one. Uh, I'm a little surprised by that, but uh, it certainly isn't because baseball is, uh, uh, you know, baseball has opened the door, and, and eventually someone's going to walk it, you know, walk through it. We hope so, Dale, and we think that uh, the work you've done, the book you've written, will be uh, tantamount to that. Now, Dale, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us up here in New York. The book again, folks, a fine read. It is The Umpire is Out, Calling the Game and Living My True Self, former umpire Dale Scott. Thank you, Dale. Bill, thank you very much. You could go to umpiredalescott.com and you've got all the information. But thank you for having me. Outstanding. That's Dale Scott, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we'll speak with the son of one of our newest and favorite Hall of Famers, Gil Hodges Jr. Stick around, folks. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are back with Sports Talk New York on WGBB here in Merrick, Long Island, New York. I hope everyone is having a wonderful weekend. We've had some great weather here in the New York area. And it is time, of course, for the Midsummer Classic Baseball's showcase. The All-Star Game is upon us. All the pomp that goes along with that. Uh, we, we have the Futures Game, which will feature um, a past guest of the show, Phillies prospect catcher Logan O'Hoppy, a graduate of St. John the Baptist Diocesan High School in West Islip. And, of course, the Home Run Derby. We're, we're all looking for a three-peat from Mr. Alonzo. 
Uh, I think he's going to have some stiff competition from Schwarber from the Phillies, but uh, we'll be watching that tomorrow night. Also, Albert Pujols will be competing in the Home Run Derby as well, future Hall of Famer right there. So we're looking forward to the Midsummer Classic, the All-Star Game. Well, our next guest, we're happy to have him back on the show, giving us some of his valuable time during a time for him and his family, probably very busy. He is the son of one of the newest Hall of Famers, and we'll see him in Cooperstown next Sunday, 724, as his great father takes his rightful place in the Baseball Hall of Fame. It's great to welcome to the show tonight Gil Hodges, Jr. Gil, good evening. Good evening, Bill. How are you? We're doing great, Gil. We're doing great. How's everything by you? Everything is good. Getting ready. Getting excited oh, oh and getting yeah. ready. I, I want to ask you, uh, let, let's uh, get straight here. Who will be speaking on behalf of your dad next Sunday? Will it be you? I'm not sure. Um, I, I hope it's me, but we'll see when that time comes to fruition. Either way, we're just thrilled that this is taking place. Uh, you know, the family's waited a long time. Yes. And, uh, everybody is quite anxious to see this come to fruition. Now, th- does that mean the speech is a collected effort between all you folks? I hope so. I yeah. hope, you know, that would, that would be the right way, but we'll see what takes place. Is your mom gonna make the trip to Cooperstown? Uh, she, unfortunately, she's not gonna be able to okay. make it. She's, she's sort of homebound, but, She's there in spirit and and is well aware of everything that's taken place and uh, that her husband finally got to see his just due. Exactly, and and we're all looking forward to that. Of course, now as we said, Gil, the culmination of years of hope, some letdown. What was the feeling back in December when Gil's name came up for election and and you got the call from from the Hall of Fame? What was the family's feeling finally? I think it was just, uh, you know, a little bit of, of total amazement. Uh, it's been a long time coming, a long time in the process. Um, some 35 different votes uh, that we've gone through. Oh but to see it finally come um, to its rightful justice form, we're all thrilled. Yes, rightfully so. Do you think the kind words from Vin Scully helped Gill's uh, case this last time through? Well, Mr. S- Mr. Scully, of course, is, is a, a big advocate of Dad, you know, knowing him for all those years with the Dodgers. And uh, any time that he has something to say, people do listen. But I think it was really a, a culmination of... Uh, Veterans Committee realizing, you know, exactly what the criteria was and the time frame involved. Um, I think once they took that into uh, perspective, um, it, it just came to fruition, and that's what we were all hoping for. We are speaking with Gil Hodges, Jr. tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, what would what would have been Gil's reaction if he waited all this time Finally made it in 2022. What, what, what would he have to say? You know, he was very humble and, uh, uh-huh. and would probably be just be thrilled to uh, to be recognized, uh, you know, by the committee um, for his efforts as, as a player and as a manager. Um, I think he'd just be thrilled. Rightfully so. Now, have you guys visited Cooperstown for, for your orientation? Um, my sister Irene, um, I live in Florida. Right. My sister Irene was able to, uh, to go up to Cooperstown and do some preliminary scouting for the family. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I think we're well prepared and just looking forward to it. Now, have, have they shown you, Gil, the, in- <clears throat> excuse me, the inscription that will appear on Gil's plaque? We haven't seen that yet. Oh, that, okay, yeah. That, that's still to be, uh, you know, um, I don't want to say, you know, the anxiety and, and the wait for it, but it's good to have something to look forward to. Yeah, I am looking forward to that, Gil. I collect the, the yellow plaque postcards of every okay. Hall of Famer, and I collect the sure. new ones every summer when I'm up there. I get the new, the new class, 
And uh, <laughs> I'm waiting to get Gil, and I'm waiting for the post office to open on Monday morning, the 25th, so I could mail those out to everybody with the Cooperstown <laughs> postmark on it. Oh, that's great. And I just that's hope just it says great. something about the Mets on the plaque, and I think it will. I'm sure it will. You know, I mean... The, that 1969 was unheralded. Uh, it, it was such a miracle that took place, and and I think that uh, everyone uh, understands that and respects it. I agree, Gil. I agree. Now, your memories of the Dodgers, maybe uh, sometimes at Dodger Town in Vero Beach, and anybody who really made an impression on you when you were a youngster. Well, you know the the. the the Dodgers themselves, not so much an individual, but more the organization. Um, you know, one of the, the greatest organizations, I think, in, in Major League Baseball, mm-hmm. um, just for the way they took care of their players and always looked after them. Um, you know, back in the day, uh, they didn't give the players any meal money on the, on the road trips um, because they wanted the players to make sure that they... They ate right and and were taken care of. So um, the players, you know, got to sign for everything that they that they wanted, and that in itself was just an example of the Dodger organization and how they looked after their players. Do you have memories, Gil, of Ebbets Field? I have some memories of Ebbets Field. I actually have uh, some dirt. <laughs> Believe it or not, from yeah. Ebbets Field, which is, you know, I hold dear. Yeah. Um, a, a, along with, believe it or not, some dirt from um, both City Field and Shea Stadium. Mm-hmm. So having those things are certainly great memories. Now, one story I, I want to ask you about, Gil, it involves Howard Cosell, and of course we know Colin Cosell, his grandson, is a friend of the show, and he is also the PA announcer at City Field. That uh-huh. at, at Gil's wake, uh, Howard brought you to the back seat of a car where Jackie Robinson was very emotional. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, people I don't think really realized the relationship between Dad and, and Jackie, they were very close. They respected each other so much um, for their work and the way they worked and the effort that they put into their work. And um, Howard took me from the funeral parlor and asked me to come around the corner and uh, sit in the back seat of a car. And when I got in there, there was Jackie. Um, who was just hysterical. Oh, boy. And, because, uh, you know, I I knew him since I was a baby, mm-hmm. uh, you know, growing up with the Dodgers. So he just gave me a hug, he gave me a kiss, and, and just turned to me and said that uh, outside of his son's passing, this was the worst day of his life. Oh, man. Well, and well, that's something that I'll always hold dear, um, only because of, of the, the man who Jackie was, and, you know, what he went through in his career and with his family. Um, a great man and a great family. And, and Rachel, God bless her, is just a saint. What a powerful memory that is, Gil. Boy, I'm, I'm glad you could relate that to to our audience. Now, we spoke a little bit about the Mets. You, you used to go to the ballpark with Gil. You were really closer in age to, to the New York Mets ball players. Um who among the the uh, sixty nine Mets uh, that we would know are are you close with? Well, you know, I, I was very fortunate uh, being the only boy in the family. I used to travel um, during the summer when school was done with Dad, and I would put on a uniform, and Dad would get permission from the umpires and, and the visiting the home team um, for me to work out, and I would take batting practice and take infield practice and got to sit on the bench during all the games on the road trips. Oh, boy. So it was just a, a storied childhood that I, that I got to lead, you know, to lead. And, you know, at the time, in, in 1968, when, when Dad was there, I was 18 years old. So traveling with the, with the ball club, uh, a lot of the boys were 23, 24, 25 years old. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the difference in age was very close. So I became friends with, you know, like Art Shamsky and Ron Swoboda 
and Ken Boswell. You know, just a lot, a lot of the players, uh, Buddy House and, and, and Tom Seaver. Um, it, it wasn't like I was the boss's son. <laughs> it was more like, uh, you know, I was someone almost their age and, and spending the summers with them. Right, a peer. Yeah, that, that's excellent, Gil. Yeah, you spoke about Tom Seaver. Tom always spoke very rever- reverentially, if that's a word. I think you know what I'm trying to say, Gil. Absolutely. He always spoke very reverently of, of Gil, and uh, he meant a lot to Tom Seaver. Oh, I mean, the admiration that Tom, uh, a, a quick story, um, several years ago, my son got married, and he got married in uh, Calistoga, California. Aha, uh-huh. okay. And we went out for the wedding, and I said, you know what, I got to give Tom a call and just say hi, because I know he's not far away from here. And I gave him a call, and he said to me, where are you? And I said, I'm over here, and, and I'm coming to my son's wedding, you know, which is his two days from now, and he said to me, where are you staying? And I told him where I was staying, and he said, okay, tomorrow, get up at 8 o'clock and walk down the block on Main Street and go into this little cafe and sit there and wait for me. Okay. And I was like, okay. And sure enough, five after eight, in walks Tom Seaver in a, in a plaid shirt and khaki pants, and he comes over, he gives me a hug, he said, I come here, you know, every day, and uh, I pick up breakfast for myself and for Nancy. He said, I live right up the mountain. And he, we got in his car, and he, he drove me to his place and, and walked me through his vineyards, and they were like his children. I mean, those grapes that he, that yeah. he, he adored. And, you know, I said, Tom, you know, I, I really have to get back, because it was already like 11 o'clock. And he said, yeah, well, in an hour I'll take you back. And we started talking and talking and talking, and we were in his office. And finally, I said, Tom, it's 4.30 in the afternoon. They're going to send out the police for me. (laughs) So we were able to get back in in, in his car, and he drove me back home. But that's that's the respect and admiration that he had for Dad. And and let me just tell you something. His family, Nancy and, and Sarah and Annie, uh, I mean, they're they're my family too. I mean, I love them the way they love me. What a wonderful memory that is too, Gil. I appreciate you relating that story to us. And uh, Seaver, as you said, the, the grapes meant as much to him as his pitching did. He took as much pride in that. Oh, oh, oh like like they were his little children. Right. I mean, yeah. This isn't Sarah or anybody. He said, no, this, these are separate children. These are separate <laughs> children. And he loved that, the GTS brand. Right. Um, and, and he just loved it. And people are like, what is GTS? And George Thomas Seaver. Right. You know, everybody knew him as Tom, but his first name was George. Yep. And, so uh, just, a, just a great, great man and a great family. Wonderful, wonderful memories here. We're talking with Gil Hodges Jr. about his father, about the 1969 Mets, the Brooklyn Dodgers. Now, I have a feeling, Gil, that those dark days of the Mets that happened in the 70s wouldn't have taken place if Gil have, had lived. I mean, he, well, he certainly know, No one ever knows. No one ever knows. No one could ever say that. I yeah, mean, I, I see. You know, if you look, Bill, if you look, if you sat, I sat in, in Dad's office before the World Series in 1969 in Baltimore where they passed out the statistic sheet for each team. And I looked at the statistics for the Mets and the statistics for the Orioles. And I said to him, Dad, what are you doing on the field with this team? I think the Orioles had four 20-game yeah. winners. It was rough. Their yeah. second <laughs> baseman hit 40 home runs. Probably one of the best third basemen who ever played the game. Brooks Robinson at third base. Uh-huh. And Boo Powell and Paul Blair. I mean, I said, what are you even doing on the field with this team? <laughs> and he got up from behind his desk and closed his office door and sat back down and said to me, son, there's 25 guys outside who think they can win. Now, that didn't mean anything to me, honestly. Mm-hmm. At, at 19 years old, what does that really mean? Especially when... You go out the first game, and your ace, Tom Seaver, gets beat. 
Right. And it's sort of like, wow, you know, this is this is probably just what's going to happen. And then they turn around and win four games in a row because he instilled the belief in each and every one of them that they could beat the Orioles. They could beat anybody. It was just, I mean, Tug McGraw said it the best. He's just amazing. Right. Uh, certainly a great memory of Gil speaking to you about the 69 series and uh, the odds that they were up against. Uh, the Hall of Fame-laden Baltimore Oriole ball club that uh, didn't know who... Uh, and I'll say it wrong like he did Ron Gasper where <laughs> there you go. Frank Robinson talking about Ron Gasper and there who the go. heck is Ron Gasper well he, absolutely. he found out who he was didn't he Gal? that's correct <laughs> that's absolutely correct and Al Weiss hitting the home run right and Ron Swoboda making that catch in right center field diving Unreal. With the, I mean it just everything just fell into place because they all believed it they what? all believed that they could win did Gil have anything to say to you or to the family about the famous shoe polish play, Gil? No. No, I, okay. Nothing, because it, it it just was what it was. Okay. I mean, you know, this is yeah. a, an instance where he, he said to the ball boy, let me see that ball. A, and he gave it to him, and he saw it, because back in those days, after every game, the shoes were shot, cleaned and shined. Yeah, right. They didn't have a, a spe- special pair for every day, like oh no, like Pete Alonso does. <laughs> a little different. Yeah. This was the same shoes for a good part of the season, right? So, but just the, the, the his demeanor on the way he walked out to home plate, looking at the ball, and just explaining to the umpire as calmly as possible, this scuff mark is what happened. Right. And even if it hits the ground first, the player is awarded first base. And lo and behold. And the umpire took yep. the ball, looked at it, and said, you're right, and gave him first base. Cleon and goes unfortunately, to first. that's when Earl Weaver uh, <laughs> felt like he might have been upstaged a little bit and got a little upset. Yeah, he couldn't stick around that day, Gil. He had to <laughs> no, leave. He, yeah. he had things to do, Bill. Yeah. Because yeah. he departed rapidly yeah, after he, that. He was, he took off that day. Another great memory of Gil we have, and I, I think Cleon will be in Cooperstown this weekend uh, along with uh, yep. with Art Shamsky and Eddie Cranepool. The, yep. the, the memory of Gil going out and speaking to Cleon and coming back with him in tow. I mean, I've spoken to Buddy Harrelson about it. I mean, Buddy thought at first he was going to the mound. Then he might have been Buddy coming to him. Buddy said he was him. never more scared in his entire life. <laughs> yeah. When he walked past the mound, he thought he was coming for him. For him, right. Yeah. <laughs> but but well, uh, Cleon learned from that experience. Well, you know what it is, and, and the reality of it is, Bill, that... Um, being a great manager and, and instilling into your players um, the confidence to be able to win and not not be concerned who you were playing, but just to do your job, um, it not only made them good ball players. I think the reality of it was that it made them better human beings, mm-hmm. and that's what they talk about. I mean, think about this. Um, He's passed away 50 years ago. Mm. 50. That's more than a lifetime for some people. And people still talk about him as if they had dinner with him two months ago. Right. That's the kind of mark you want to leave on society. That, Not uh, so much statistics or what you've accomplished. You want to be remembered for the kind of person you were. And I think that's what he would be proud of. That would will be his legacy and memory, Gil, I believe. And it's like Jackie said, and it's written in the rotunda at City Field, a life is good only as much as the impact it has on other lives. And, and you're right, Gil certainly has touched all of us. Yeah, countless lives. And, and, and to me, that's, that's what I'm proud to be his son a man who had that kind of impact in such a short span on this earth was able to leave. 
Well, if you're if you're walking around town next weekend, I already have Irene. Uh, I've given her the description of a large man with a crew cut with a blue rollator barreling <laughs> down Main Street. If you see that person, chances are it's going to be me, Gil. So I'll come looking for yeah. you. <laughs> I'll I'll look for you folks too. I I always like running into the families of the inductees in in that beautiful little town up there. Have Have you been uh, to Cooperstown before, Gil? I, I have been there before. Yes, yeah, I have been. It's just, it's just, it's just where time stood still. Yes, it's an idyllic little little village, and uh, they they really have it great up there. And Gil, I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday to spend some of it with us up here in New York, and uh, we can't wait to see you next Sunday. Thank you, Bill. I enjoyed it. Stay well, stay safe, and we'll hopefully see you next Sunday. Yes, sir. You take care. All the best. That, that's Thank you, Bill. That's Gil Hodges, Jr., ladies and gentlemen. We thank him for coming on with us. We'll take a break, Brian. We'll be right back after this, folks. Hang around. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back. In the final few moments of Sports Talk New York here on Sunday night, the 17th day of July 2022. Uh, a really good show tonight. I'm satisfied with the job I did bringing these great memories to you. Of course, Dale Scott, the first openly gay umpire to work in the major leagues. His book, uh, very much worth the time to read. It's from our friends at the University of Nebraska Press. It's called The Umpire is Out, Calling the Game and Living My True Self, uh, a great book by Dale Scott. The foreword is by uh, Billy Bean, himself gay, uh, an openly gay uh, major leaguer, and uh, I think he works in the commissioner's office now, Billy Bean, spent a lot of time with the Oakland Athletics. And, of course, Gil Hodges, Jr., what can I say there, folks? Uh, some great stories, some great talk about Gil Hodges, who will finally be uh, walking through the portals, the hallowed portals of the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, uh, next Sunday. And I look forward to that and uh, look forward to uh, seeing that plaque on the wall in Cooperstown with Gilbert Raymond Hodges, finally taking his rightful place. And that's about it, folks. I thank you for uh, stopping by, spending some time with me. That'll do it tonight on Sports Talk New York. I would like to thank my guests again, Dale Scott and Gil Hodges, Jr., my engineer, Brian Graves, and you once again for joining us. I'll see you next on August 7th. We're going to have some surprises for you that night. Keep an eye out for whom. We will be talking sports to that night. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue, wishing you a good evening, folks. The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.